Well, friends, the greatest news in the world is that Christ came and accomplished redemption, and it's over. And so that means that not only did he justify you in what he did, he is by his spirit sanctifying you, and he will keep you. He will hold you fast. Praise God, it has nothing to do with us, because if it did, we would have no hope. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer and ask him for his help as we look to the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come as your people, whom you have called by your name. We come in need of what only you by your spirit can do. And so we pray quite simply, Father, that you would be with us in this time as we look to your word. We, more than anything, want to behold Christ from your word this morning. And so we pray that you would use the preaching of your word to hold Jesus out for all of us. We pray that as we behold Christ from Scripture, that we would be transformed, that our faith would be sustained and strengthened. We pray, God, that you would comfort us. We pray that we would be reminded of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And we pray that as we consider these things, we would be strengthened. And we would be even propelled forward in the Christian life by this great message of Jesus and his work. So we pray now that you would come and that you would help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, the the message for today, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 45 of Mark chapter 1. Just go ahead and say that. It's our second of 22 planned sermons for the gospel of Mark. The question that's going to basically drive the message today is this. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come primarily? Like what was his mission at the heart of it? We're not necessarily considering things that are maybe implications of it or residual effects of his main mission, but why did he come? In answer to that question, you hear all kinds of things like broadly. I'm not even talking about in the world. I'm talking about in the church. Depending on who you listen to, you you might be told that Jesus came to be our example. The great one. He showed us how to live. He came to overturn moral and societal norms, perhaps. Some would say he came as a revolutionary to overthrow the establishment. Some would say he came to establish a a code of ethics or even a morality. Some would say he came so that we might honestly have better lives, so that we'd get our finances in order or we'd have better relationships. Some might say that he came so that we'd have better marriages or we might parent better. Some might say that he came so that we might have a greater sense of fulfillment. My question for us is, are any of those the reason that Jesus came? Any of those things, are they the reason? Let's look to the Bible together. If you have your Bibles, I hope that you do, open them up to Mark chapter 1 and verse 14. I already gave that one away. You know where we're headed. It's printed in your bulletin. And as you're flipping there, just by way of reminder, we spent some time last Sunday morning in Mark's Gospel, verses 1 through 13, of chapter 1, where we considered the kind of setting of the table for the public ministry of Jesus Christ. We considered together how he, even in the words about John the Baptist, how John and Jesus are fulfillments of everything that the prophets had foretold and predicted. We thought about the baptism of Christ, how he was baptized, not for his own sake, but for our sake. He was baptized to fulfill all righteousness in the place of his people. And we also thought about the temptation of Christ, where we see that Jesus is the new and better Adam, where he succeeded in every way that Adam fell. Jesus was tempted in a wasteland and succeeded where Adam had been tempted in a paradise and fell. We thought about that together last week. Which brings us now to verse 14 of Mark chapter 1. This is the beginning of Christ's public ministry. 
And so before we go any further, I want to read our verses for us this morning. It's the entirety of chapter one from verses 14 through the end. So listen now to God's word. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer open or openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So I want to preach this sermon basically in two parts. Big part one, big part two. Big part one, we're going to consider the big things, the important things that happen in this text. Because even as we read it, you're probably thinking like, bro, there's a lot going on. Like this is like just kind of one thing after another. Well, they're not irrelevant. They're not unrelated. We're going to think about all of these things that are described for us in these verses together. And then in the second part, we're going to kind of come back to that big question of why did Jesus come? So for part one, I've got several things for us, a handful of things for us to consider in terms of the important things that happen in this text. First, we will see that Jesus begins to preach. So number one, Jesus begins to preach. We see this especially in verses 14 and 15, but we see in other verses, in verse 21 and verses 38 and 9, we see the priority that Jesus places on teaching, on heralding the good news. In particular, he proclaims, we see verse 14, the gospel of God, the good news of God. His message, we also see, is one of fulfillment. You can see that just as plainly as I can in verse 15. So when he's proclaiming the gospel of God, he says this. This is a summary of the message. The time is fulfilled 
And the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, friends, what do we make of this fulfillment language that characterizes the message of Christ? How should we understand it? I'm going to give us some Bible just to kind of flesh this out for us a little bit more. I'm going to give you some scripture references. You can jot them down. We're not putting this on the screen. I want you to just hear God's word read over you. Thinking about fulfillment and Christ preaching a message that the time is fulfilled. What does that mean? Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for us. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. In him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. First Peter 1, 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Luke 24, 25 through 27. This is the Emmaus Road, right? Christ is talking to a couple of his disciples in the aftermath of his crucifixion. They're warped out of their frame because Jesus has been killed. And Christ walks up beside these guys on the road and he's like, how's it going, fellas? And they're like, bro, do you not know what's gone on here in the last few days? He's like, what's, what things? What are you talking about? And so they tell him about his own crucifixion. And then he says to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Fulfillment, right? John 5, 37 through 39. Again, talking to a Jewish audience. Jesus says this, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. In other words, you don't believe me. Then he says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. All right, so, takeaway. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God had revealed in the Scripture. And by the Scripture at this point in history, we mean what we know as the Old Testament. So when we see this language, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is here. He's saying, the Messiah is here. The Christ is here. The promised one is here. The one of whom the prophets wrote. The one of whom Moses wrote. The one of whom the psalmists wrote is here. With his coming, the kingdom of God came to earth. A new era had dawned. And so, there's a response required. We see that at the end of verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so, repent and believe in the gospel. It's the only appropriate response to the news of the Christ coming. The language there of repent and believe. I just want to talk about that for a moment. I want to 
help us think well as a church together. Because when you read the Gospels and you read the New Testament epistles, you'll see sort of different words and phrases and formulas used to describe essentially saving faith. So you'll see this formula of repent and believe. Sometimes you'll see the word just believe. Jesus will say believe. Sometimes you'll even see the word abide. Shout out to our boy Ron Diaz over here. Abide. That's John, he loves John 15, abide in Christ. And so you'll see that language. Abide in me or abide in Christ. You'll also see the word simply of faith. Paul will talk about we are saved not by works but by faith. Okay, so when we see repent and believe, we need to think about this. Repent and believe biblically are not two separate things. They are the opposite side of the same coin. This matters, okay, in thinking about faith. Another way that I might even frame this, I hope to keep kind of explaining this and hoping this makes sense for us. When we see this repent and believe, that is synonymous with what we will say, we are saved by faith in Christ. Faith, what is that? What is faith? It's trusting. It's hoping. It's resting. It's believing in Jesus. And that faith, those postures, assume and incorporate repentance. To repent is simply to turn. It's a change of course. That's what it means. So faith, this kind of trusting, hoping, resting, believing, casting myself upon Christ, it necessarily includes a turning. It includes repentance. How? It, it requires, it assumes a change of posture because it means that I'm looking away from me to someone. I was looking to myself. I was looking to maybe the world. I was looking to my own notions of my own goodness. I was maybe enjoying my sin. But I'm looking away from all of that to Christ. That is a change of life trajectory. That's repentance if I've ever heard of it. I'm not, in other words, I'm not hoping in myself anymore. I'm not hoping in anything that this world can provide anymore. I'm casting myself completely upon Jesus. That's faith. So when you read repent and believe or you read abide or you read believe, you can think faith. Second thing that we see big time happening in this text in addition to Jesus beginning to preach this message, the good news of fulfillment and Him coming and believe, is we see Him call His first disciples. So number two, Jesus calls His first disciples. Verses 16 through 20, we see the account there. It's familiar to many, where Jesus walks alongside the Sea of Galilee. He sees Simon, who will be renamed Peter, and his brother Andrew first. He says, come follow me, and they do. Then he sees James and his brother John. He says, come follow me. And they do. He is calling these men who will play a role in the building of the church. Like we should see that even here. These men are going to be a part of the founding of and the starting of the new covenant community called the church. They will be Christ's messengers. He tells them, verse 17, follow me and you, I will make you become Fishers of men. You used to like catch fish. You're going to catch men in one sense. Well, what is that? Many will believe. Think about what Christ says even in John 17. Blessed are the ones who believe in me through your word, through your message. The disciples will preach Christ. People will believe in Jesus and come. The king is inviting people into his kingdom. And it needs to be noted that they respond by coming. So when we see even the Gospels preached, we can't save ourselves. All we can do is respond to what Christ has done, we believe. We're called, come, and we go. These men, 
Peter, Andrew, James, John. They're not special. They're ordinary men. Fallen like you, like me. And it wouldn't be until they were taught by Christ. And ultimately, it wouldn't be until they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit that they would have understanding and that they would be made sufficient for the task of preaching and seeing the church built. Third thing that we see happen in this text is that Jesus teaches with authority. There is a unique kind of authority that accompanies Christ's teaching. So put your eyes now, even just verses 21 through 28 in this whole encounter. When he goes into Capernaum on the Sabbath day, he enters the synagogue and he teaches. And the people are astonished at him. They're astonished at the way that he teaches. It's not normal. This isn't like what they usually hear. It should be noted, friends, that Jesus has unique authority in teaching the Scripture for two reasons. One, His authority in teaching is found in who He is. Right? Utterly unique. The God-man. But then also, His authority in teaching is found in His ability to rightly divide the Scripture. Think Sermon on the Mount. Okay, So think about how He taught there, the most famous sermon ever given. How does he speak? He says, you have heard it said, do not murder. He's citing the law. And then he says, but I say to you, if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you have killed him. You have broken the law. It's not that Jesus is coming up with anything new. It's that he is preaching and unpacking the law in the way that it should be preached and taught and unpacked. He preaches the law to the heart level. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that if you look at someone lustfully, you have committed adultery. You have broken the law. There is a unique authority that Jesus wields because of who he is and because of how he divides the scripture. Number four that we see happening in this text. Jesus demonstrates authority over demons and disease. Jesus demonstrates authority over demons and disease. So we see this in verses 23, basically through 34. And then we also are going to see it again in verses 40 to 42. So verses 23 through 34, we have this encounter described for us in the synagogue. He's been teaching. There's a man there with an unclean spirit. So he's been oppressed by a demon. And Jesus, after the demon through the man has spoken, like, hey, Jesus, what do you have to do with us? If you come to destroy us, we know who you are. Christ rebukes the evil spirit, the unclean spirit. Be quiet, come out of him. The demon obeys. And people are wigging out. Like, who is this guy? He teaches with authority, and even the demons listen to him. Who is this man? But then we see, verses 29 and following, he leaves the synagogue, he enters Peter's house, Simon's house. James and John are with, and Simon's mother-in-law is sick. She has a fever. They tell him, he goes over to her, verse 31, takes her by the hand, lifts her up, she's well, and she begins to serve. Then we see that that evening at sundown, literally... Like, not the whole city, but practically. That's how Mark describes it. Everybody's there. Because they hear of what Christ is doing. They're outside the house. He heals many of various diseases and casts out, verse 34, many demons. He's continuing to demonstrate authority over the kingdom of darkness. And then verses 40 and 42. Well, hang on, time out. I'm going to pump the brakes. Just in this whole... Business of because I want to move on to the leper and think about him specifically. So before we do that, I want to talk just for a moment again about just this kind of demon casting out stuff. The big thing that we should see in Christ's authority over demons is that the king of the kingdom of God is demonstrating power and authority over the kingdom of darkness. So light has come and is triumphing over darkness and evil. Even the demons obey him. 
And that's what we need to understand. In Christ's healing ministry, like when he heals Peter's mother-in-law and when he heals many people from the city of Capernaum, we need to see how Jesus is powerful over the effects of the fall. So sickness and disease and death and all those things come into the world as a result of sin in Genesis 3. And we see here that Jesus is powerful over the effects of the curse. Sin brought wreckage. Sin brought devastation. And Jesus brings restoration. He's beginning to roll back the effects of the curse. Now on to the leper specifically, verses 40 to 42. I got a little bit ahead of myself there, guys. I apologize for that. Verses 40 and 42, we see this this leprous man. Again, leprosy, for many familiar with reading the Old Testament, is a word used to describe various forms of skin diseases. These things were highly contagious, right? And so just practically speaking, lepers were removed from the camp. They were removed from the dwelling place of the people and put outside just for the sake of everybody's well-being. They were viewed as unclean, right? They were outcasts, societally speaking, because they could not be around the rest of society. So have that in mind as we see this encounter with this leprous man. This man comes to Jesus and implores him, the text says, kneels down and says, if you will, you can make me clean. That's an astonishing statement. Like, not just, you know, you can take my skin disease away, you can make me clean. I mean, so make me clean in that I don't have leprosy. But this man is standing before more than he even understands. Moved with pity. So Jesus, compassion, right? Compassion on this leprous man. Christ stretches out his hand and touches him, right? Don't miss that. Touches the leprous man and said to him, I will, I will be clean. And immediately we see the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Leprosy, as I've already said, was contagious through contact. So not only did the person who had the leprosy, not only were they considered unclean, anybody who came into contact with said individual was considered unclean. So the Jewish audience here, immediately alarm bells are going off because Christ is not only in the immediate presence of this leper, he goes so far as to touch this man. In theory, touching that leper should make Christ unclean. But notice what happens. Jesus touches the leper and Jesus is not made unclean. The leper is made clean. This is no ordinary man. The point of all of this, everything that we're thinking about, demons and disease and Christ's authority, is just that reality. Who is this guy? That's what Mark is getting at. He, he is not a normal man. He's already been clear from the jump, right? Jump Street, verse, chapter 1 and verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But he's just piling up the evidence. This is who he is, the Christ. Number five, the fifth thing that we see happening in this text. This will be brief. Jesus' fame grows. Jesus' fame grows. He's becoming wildly notorious, famous, popular, whatever word you want to use. So Jesus, we see several times through our text, like verse 25, Jesus rebukes the evil spirit in the synagogue, be silent, because the demon is like, hey, we know who you are, bro. And he says, be silent. We see verses 36 and 37, that he's had to go out into a desolate place to pray even because his fame is mounting everyone. Verse 37 is looking for you. And then verse 45 in particular, we see that the leper whom Jesus told, like, don't say anything about me, has resulted in him not even being able to go openly into a town. Like that's how popular he has become. The fanfare is like at an 11. So what's up with this? Jesus is always trying to like stifle his own rep. You know, he's saying, don't talk about me. Don't tell people about me. He's trying to like keep it under wraps. We're going to notice that over and over again in Mark's gospel in a Jewish context. Whenever Jesus is around a Jewish audience and he's doing things that are miraculous, he tells people, don't talk about who I am. 
don't tell people who I am. Now, when he's around Gentiles, like we'll see in Mark chapter 5, he's like, he tells the guy that he removes demons from, go tell everybody about what I've done for you. What's the deal? Jesus does not, in terms of his Jewish context, he came first to the Jew and then for the Gentile. He does not want a bunch of fanfare. He has a mission to accomplish. So this is getting us to why did he come? The healing is great. Even the teaching is great. But why did he come, right? So he doesn't want to jeopardize the mission. His earthly fame gets in the way of what he came to do. Verse 45 is exhibit A of that. Can't even go into a town because he's so popular. So he's trying to keep this under wraps. So we've seen in these verses a lot of stuff happen. Jesus begins to preach. He calls his first disciples. He teaches with a unique authority. He demonstrates authority over demons and over disease. And his fame is beginning to grow. But that brings us back, so this is the second part of the sermon, that brings us back to that huge question that we started with. Why did Jesus come? What's at the heart of it? Why did he come? Because when you read a gospel account like we just did, and it's like scattershot, man. It's like one after another, after another, after another, after another. All this stuff is happening. It could be easy to just sort of get lost in the individual little episodes and think, what's the main point? So we're going to try to consider that together. Why did Jesus come? So we're going to kind of start with the negative and then go to the positive. Okay, so we're going to consider first why he didn't come. So these are the not primary reasons. Okay, I have six of them. This is not exhaustive. These are six reasons that are not the main reason. Number one, Jesus did not come to establish a massive earthly ministry. It's pretty clear. That's not controversial. Right? He's not trying to just build this massive following. Number two, Jesus did not come to be a revolutionary and overthrow the establishment. That was not the purpose of his life on earth. Now, does he challenge the establishment in some ways, certainly of his Jewish context? Absolutely. But was that the reason he came? No. Third, Jesus did not come to overturn moral and societal norms. Though he did do that in ways. Okay? But that was not the main reason he came. Number four. Jesus did not come to establish a code of ethics. Though of course, he does teach many things regarding how we are to treat each other. So he talks a lot about that. How we should live together. But that is not the reason he came. Okay. I trust I've offended no one yet. I'm getting to the place now where it's kind of like, hey, track with me, hear me out before the parking lot just empties, okay? So here we go, number five. Jesus did not come primarily. He did not come primarily to be our example. So let me explain. Jesus is, to be clear, Jesus is our example. Okay? He is the perfect one, the only perfect human being ever to live, worthy of imitation in a way that nobody else is. Just be clear. But him being our perfect example is not his main mission. Why? Because of this. Jesus, as our example, damns us If he is not first our savior. I'm going to say that again. Like this is massively important. Jesus as our example damns us. If he is not first our savior. Because nobody can live up to his example. Nobody can live like Christ. So his life. His perfect life. In a primary sense, he lived for us to be counted to us as our life. And then in a secondary sense, his perfect life is our example to follow. Tracking with me? Okay. Number six. If number five was risky, this one is like terrifying. Number six. 
Jesus did not come primarily so that your life will go better now. Jesus did not come primarily so that your life would go better now. Now, you're okay with me for right now until I start to say a few other things. I hope you're okay with me even in five minutes. I'm not talking Joel Osteen right now, wealth, health, and prosperity. I'm talking about other stuff, okay? So caveat, like disclaimer, flashing red letters, all caps. I don't want to be misunderstood. Your life will most definitely be better in every way that matters because of Christ. Your life, without doubt, will be better in every way that matters because of Jesus. I am the first to say, people that know me well at all in this church will know, that I say this pretty often, a robust biblical understanding of Jesus and the gospel and sin and grace has changed my life and many others in this room. It's transformed my marriage. It's made my home a safer place. Okay, so I'm not saying that you won't be changed and that these things won't be affected. They will, but track with me. We have to be able to distinguish the heart of Christ's mission from the other things that might happen in the believer's life. So here's where it gets controversial. Jesus did not come primarily to live and die and rise again for sinners so that we could have better marriages. He did not come primarily so that sinners could be better parents. He did not come primarily so that we would think better about money. He did not come primarily so that we would be better employees. He did not come primarily so that we would feel more fulfilled. And this is where I'm like, look, before you all leave, listen to me. Think about the church broadly, okay? There is all of this material about how to have a better fill in the blank. Have a better whatever. Marriage. Have a better career. Have a, be a better dad. Be a better mom. Be more content in your singleness, right? There are all kinds of sermons. Like if you want a sermon like that, you can go anywhere. Here is how to have a better, you fill it in. You come away with all of this wisdom and a number of like helpful tips and thoughts and you don't need Jesus for any of it. That's, that's what I'm saying. You can come away with all kinds of wisdom, all kinds of tips, all kinds of helpful thoughts that you don't need Christ for. So, I could counsel somebody who is not a Christian. I could counsel a couple who aren't believers. Give them some wisdom. Give them some common sense and help them in their marriage. I could meet with a person who's not a believer and give him or her a better perspective on being a good employee. There are people who aren't believers who have great marriages. There are people who aren't believers who are excellent employees, who are great parents. There are people who aren't Christians who feel quite fulfilled. Like, more fulfilled than many Christians do. And so let me frame it to you this way. If you think that this, like, critical piece of why Jesus came was so that your marriage would be better, or so that your relationships with your kids would be better, or your finances would be better, or your career would be better, or you'd feel more fulfilled, what's going to happen if those things fall apart? Because they do. Even in the church, they do. Marriages are hard. Married people in the room know that. It's awesome, it's good, and it's hard. And they sometimes fall apart in spite of every effort to salvage it. Sometimes kids want nothing to do with parents. Sometimes financial hardships happen. Sometimes jobs are lost. Sometimes people feel empty or discouraged or purposeless. So here's the point. I don't think you're misunderstanding me. I just, here's the point. Our grounding in Christ must be deeper than any of those things. It's got to be deeper than marriage and parenting and work and fulfillment. Your status justified, your identity in Christ, child of God, run way deeper 
way deeper than your marriage or your parenting or your money or your job or your fulfillment or whatever. That's the point. Okay, so I'm going to nuance this. Does God care about our relationships? Absolutely. Does God care about our marriages? Yes, he does. Does he care about our parenting? Yes. Does he care about how we use money? Yes. Does he care about our work? Yes, of course he does. Do the pastors of CBC care about those things for our church? Yeah, we do. We spend a lot of time and energy, not just the pastors, but the church does. We spend a lot of time and energy meeting with each other and counseling one another and talking about these things, which we should do in the church. And all of that is done underneath the banner, Christ crucified for sinners. At the end of the day, all of these things that we're talking about, our marriages and relationships and fulfillment and how good of an employee we are, anything like that, all of those things improve, friends, as a result of God's Holy Spirit doing His sanctifying work in us. That's how transformation happens. That's how change happens. It's not always neat and tidy. In fact, I would say it's rarely neat and tidy. It's not just this perfect, beautiful, like, linear graph here. It's this, it's this thing, right? So I've said enough about Jesus and what his primary mission was not. Let's talk now about what it is. What was it? His primary mission. I'm going to say three things about this. Again, not exhaustive, but three. One. Jesus, his main mission. He came to save us. He came to accomplish the redemption of his people. How did he do it? He did it. By fulfilling the law for us in our place. He lived that perfect life. We confessed it earlier. His life is perfect. He did it for us. So that by faith in Him, His perfect record could be counted to us. He came to make atonement. Because we've all messed up. We have broken God's law. We are worthy and guilty. We're worthy of punishment and guilty. God is a just God. And Jesus came to satisfy justice. We sang about that. Justice has been satisfied. The penalty paid, the wrath satisfied for the people of God so that by faith, our record is Christ's record and our sins are wiped away. The wrath we deserve has been taken and it's done. He came to conquer sin and death and hell for us. Because sin wrecks us. It wrecks the world. The, the creation is groaning. And we struggle mightily under the burden of our own corruption. Amen, somebody. That is our experience day after day after day. He came to conquer that. He came to conquer death because we're all perishing. He destroyed it. He defeated it. It will be no more one day. Blows your mind that we will live in a world with God and each other without any fear of that, of death and of things falling apart. How? Because of Christ. He came to make possible the words of the Apostle Paul. God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the greatest news in the world. That's our hope that transcends any circumstance or hardship. So I want to speak personally, just as your pastor with you for a moment. What I want you to feel, and I'm using the word feel, like I know I am. I'm not saying think. I want you to feel in your bones, that all right, Jesus came to save me. He came to save me. I want you to feel that He came to give me righteousness that I don't have. He came to pay for my sins, and they're great. My sin is great, and He came to pay for it. He came to conquer all of my enemies, namely death and sin and hell. He conquered them for me. 
He came so that I might know and have eternal life with God and with the redeemed forever. And so I want you and us to cling to Jesus with all we've got. I want us to know and to feel. So here's how this relates to some of that other stuff earlier. I want us to know and feel that no matter how our lives may be going at any moment, that Jesus really has given us everything that we could ever really need. Regardless of how my relationships are, I want them to be good. I'm going to work at them so that they're good. I'm going to abide by what the Bible says is good so that my relationships will be good. And if they're not, I have Christ. I want us to know, we say this a lot, but I want us to know that Christ is enough. He's enough for salvation, clearly. And he's enough, period. Like, enough, full stop. If we never had anything else good at all, if we never had anything else good at all, and we have Jesus, we have enough. We are so prone and it's understandable, right? I mean, these things that we're talking about and relationships and work and fulfillment and all these things and things that we do that we enjoy, they matter to us because they're a big deal in our lives. I'm not saying they're not. But we are so prone to focus on all of those peripheral things that we lose sight of the main thing. We want to be able to say with the psalmist, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength and my portion forever. Christ is enough. Number two, what did Jesus come to do? Other than to save us and accomplish our redemption. This one will be very brief because we're going to keep thinking about this through Mark's gospel. Number two, he came to herald the news of his own coming. He came to herald the news of his own coming. Like, hey guys, I'm on the scene. We're going to think about, as we make our way through Mark, we're going to think about how he does that, how he preaches and teaches. Because he preaches and teaches law and gospel. We're going to think about that together. Number three, what did Christ come to do primarily? Number three, he came to prepare his followers for the coming of the Holy Spirit and the building of the church. He came to prepare his followers for the coming of the Holy Spirit and the building of the church. He would teach his disciples many things. He would spend the last night that he would have on earth comforting them. That's a sweet thought. Like when you read John 13 through 17, that gives us all that great detail of Christ's last night on earth. He spends that not worrying about himself and what he's about to do primarily. He spends that evening teaching and comforting his disciples. He's preparing them for what's about to happen. He would help his disciples understand why it would be better for him to go and the Holy Spirit to come. The spread of the gospel and the establishment of the church is the result, is the result of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. There, there is no church apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I think we understand that. All of that the building of the church, the spreading of the gospel, all of that empowered by the Holy Spirit. And what's wild is that we're a part of that. I don't know if you thought about that. We're a part of that. Like that, We should be having these like holy smokes moments, like periodically at least. Like you're telling me that I get to be a part of what God is doing. Yes. It's very remarkable that we get included in this at all when we start to think about ourselves for a half a minute. Because just like the disciples, we are quite ordinary. We're not better than other people. Like, we've talked about this, how Christians should be the most humble people on the planet because we are the most hopefully self-aware because we have God's diagnosis of us. We have God's assessment of us. So we ought to know that, my goodness, we're not in the church and we're not Christians because we're better than other people. God is not in the business of just saving those who are elite, right? He's not even in the business of just saving people who are likable. I mean, my goodness, there are people outside the church who are really easy to get along with. So we're not saved because of our acceptability. We're not worthy to be a part of this. 
And we certainly are not sufficient for any of the tasks that we're called to in the church, whether that's preaching a sermon or weeping with somebody who's just gotten the diagnosis that nobody ever wants to get. Our sufficiency comes from the Lord. And even though we are unworthy people, we get to be a part of what God is doing. We get to be a part of God's covenant community. We get to take part in the ministry of the church. It's a privilege, man. The church is about Jesus and the people who need him. We've said that before. The church is about Jesus and the people who need him. And so what a privilege it is to be in the church. What a privilege it is to be able to invite others in. To invite those who are burdened to come to Jesus to have those burdens removed. To invite those who are starving to come sit at the table with the king. To invite those who are lost to come home to the shepherd and overseer of their souls. To invite those who are weary to come find rest in Christ. It's a remarkable thing. May God give us grace that we would be faithful in the task. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now in need of your spirit to move and work. As the sermon is now finished, we pray that you would take your word and drive it deep into our hearts. We pray that anything that was said that was unhelpful or not true would dissipate like a mist even in our midst right now. We pray that anything that was said that was true and helpful, that you would drive it deep into our minds and our hearts and that we would know it and that we would love it and that we would be affected by it. We pray for us now as we turn to the Lord's table that you would be with us still by your spirit, that you would minister through this ordinance that you've given us, that you would feed us by faith as we come to the table, that you would sustain and strengthen our faith as we come together as a church to cast ourselves on Christ in the Lord's Supper. So come now and be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.